Welcome to Yoga Chit Chat. I'm Phoebe Schiff, yoga teacher, sauna lover, and modern mystic. And I'm Karak Morinaga, yoga teacher, retired marketing analyst, and former yoga studio owner. Every week, we meet virtually for an informal discussion on a common yoga principle, practice, or theme. Today's topic is the niyamas, roughly translated as observances or trainings. Last week, we covered the yamas, which were kind of the do-nots, the things that we should not do or do not do. So there were things like do no harm, do not steal, etc. The yamas were ways that we should interact or not interact with others. And then the niyamas are personal observances, ways that we should conduct ourselves, things that we should observe and do. And they tend to be a little more internal or focused more on ourselves rather than how we interact with others. The yamas and niyamas come from Patanjali and the Yoga Sutras. They're part of the Ashtanga Yoga path, the path of eight limbs. And so I'm not sure how important it is to follow them in the specific order. I think I mentioned this on the other podcast too. Did you want to talk about that just for a second, Phoebe, about the order? The order of the yamas and niyamas is less important because the way Patanjali describes them is that if you've if you can fully master and embody one then you don't need the rest if you can't master one then you move on to the next one so the niyamas are these different observances that we can make And the intention is to try and fully embody them, but they are rather challenging. So we, there's sort of like a checklist for getting closer to Samadhi. Trying to master one and then going to the next and trying to master the second one and then moving to the next could take forever. It could take a lifetime. So it might be, easier just to work on all of them at once and see how far we can get. The first niyama is saucha, which is often translated as cleanliness. And as we go through the niyamas today, we can think of them in terms of the yoga practice, what we're doing on the mat. And then we can also think of the niyamas in terms of what we do off of the mat the rest of our lives. How do you practice saucha? There's a lot of different ways of looking at saucha. Mine is, is pretty big. It's, it's acceptance of what I believe to be one of the most essential paradoxes of being a human. To be a human is to be kind of filthy. Like we're kind of gross <laughs> and, and Patanjali talks about this in the yoga sutras, you know, we're sweating, we're secreting every time you clean yourself up, you get dirty again. And so 
there needs to be this kind of radical acceptance that, that we're filth and simultaneously that we are divine consciousness wrapped up in a sort of filthy um, costume. So to me, Saucha is acceptance of this paradox and doing our best to show up to our mats and to show up to life as clean as possible. Yeah, on the mat, I think that it is keeping our space tidy so we don't have a bunch of items strewn across the mat or around our mat. So may we organize ourselves so that the yoga teacher doesn't kick over a glass water bottle or step on a ring that pokes through the sole of someone's foot and causes them to bleed. Not that that's ever happened to me. It's putting your phone away so that it doesn't distract you during the practice. That to me is all part of cleanliness, just the physical space. We can talk about it in terms of the actual poses where I like to think of the alignment of the practice as sort of cleaning up the pose. Maybe in the initial moment when you take a breath and you open up into warrior two, the pose is a little messy. And then we start to align and put things in the proper place, moving the femurs back into the hip sockets, drawing the shoulders back and softly engaging the shoulder blades on the back. All of these things put us into a feng shui of the body that allows us to open up and just be very clean, for lack of a better term. As a yoga teacher and as a student, I do appreciate when I cannot smell the person next to me. I think that part of Saucha can be practiced by coming to the mat in a way where we're not offending anyone with, and I don't just mean body odor. It could be a perfume or using too much Axe spray is kind of gross. Cleanliness is just a way of being respectful of others and we can do that both on and off of the mat. I think that outer cleanliness, it's a nice physical manifestation of inner cleanliness. And so we want to try and show up as clean and pure and open as possible. So, you know, you can, you can still take a shower and have your mind be a total mess. Don't get me wrong, but it's just a nice step it's a nice gesture to make in these, you know, filthy bodies and in this, you know, imperfect experience that we're having. It's sort of like as much as we can do. I love, I love, 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 love what you said about cleaning up in the posts and that being the process of getting into alignment of, of, you know, in warrior two, pulling your femurs back and engaging your core. And so we, we are always intending to be pure. We're always trying to get a little bit cleaner by tidying up, whether it's our space or our bodies or our minds. Yeah. And you mentioned mind at the very end there, Phoebe, and I think that's really important too. So we can clean up the physical space. We can be fresh and clean in our bodies. And then also in our minds, uh, if our minds are a mess, then what is all the external stuff for? 
may we strive to be pure, as pure as possible in our minds. So when we're struggling in a pose, we've been in warrior two for too long. May we not start cursing the yoga teacher because of that. Then, then we're losing that inner cleanliness. So may we find purity and cleanliness from the inside out. I hope not too many curses have been cast upon us for holding people in warrior two for too long. Oh, I'm pretty sure that there's been lots of cursing towards me in my life. <laughs> <laughs> At least that's how I feel. <laughs> Probably me too. All right, so the, moving on to the next one. Yeah, the second one is Santosha, often translated as contentment. How do you practice contentment or teach contentment on the mat? Contentment is, in the Yoga Sutras, Patanjali says it's not liking or disliking anything. The way that I think about this, a friend, a close friend of mine gave me some advice that I always, always keep in mind, which is to treat my successes and failures the exact same way. And that to me is contentment. It's just it's acceptance and appreciation for just being able to play the game at all without any attachment to how the game goes. And so contentment is what leads us to joy. It's acceptance of, of whatever unfolds on the mat and in our life and, and having the same just open, happy attitude about whatever unfolds. Being content to me means, I think you said something very similar, regardless of success or failure, the intention is to maintain my composure and to be even and keep going in life. Life will have its ups and downs. We'll have things to celebrate and there will be moments of remorse or repentance or grievance. And those are all natural, but at the end of the day, we have to keep going. We have to appreciate and accept life as it comes to us, whether we had the best day of our lives or the worst day of our lives, it's still life. And may we enjoy and be content with the life that we have, not looking to the next person and trying to be like them or compete with them or somehow have some other life. May we enjoy the life that we have. May we appreciate the life that we have. It's not that we're not trying to be better. We can strive to improve our warrior two. We can work on getting that handstand. We can practice to deepen our backbends. I'm not saying that we shouldn't have ambition or drive or goals. All of those things are fine and we should do them. We should have them. But regardless of success or failure, at the end of the day, we have to be able to let go and accept and move on. And that to me is contentment. Exactly. The other thing that came up for me was we, when we went to the Anusara conference, I guess a couple of years ago, and Carlos Pomeda, the tantric philosopher, talked about really embodying witness consciousness. And contentment to me is, is 
really connecting to witness consciousness and observe being less involved in the drama of success or failure and being the consciousness that watches the success and or failure unfold and just being that non-judgmental curious awareness right so treating success and failure the same to me it implies that we're always learning and growing from our experience. We're always having the experience. We just don't want to get stuck in, in the cycle of always chasing success and, and being bummed out by failure. Right. right. So we're going to have success and failure. We, we understand that. And that cycle is going to continue till the end of this life and beyond. And we have to be okay with that. We do. We do. There's so many quotes that apply. One of my favorite is is, um, rejection is just redirection. You know, failure is just information. So when we can be as open to rejection or failure as we are to success or triumph, then we've really, really mastered contentment, Santosha. I think this is a really key niyama for this day and age where it's so easy to compare ourselves to others because of things like social media. We see the lives and we see the best parts of the lives of our peers and friends and family. And it can be really easy to to want that and to start to be discontent with our own lives, of which we are much more aware of the successes and the failures. So Santosha seems very simple, but I think it can be very challenging to practice in this day and age. The third niyama is tapas, uh, directly translated as fire, and then we'll, we'll call it something like discipline in the context of the observances. So tapas, fire or discipline. I love tapas. I think this is such an important idea. The definition that really resonates with me is that it is accepting pain as a path to purification and not having the desire to cause more pain to the entity that caused you pain. And to me, it's really, it's accepting that being put through the fire is an uncomfortable and transformational process, but in order to transform, in order to change states, you have to go through the fire. You know, if you want to cook food, you have to heat it in order for it to go from raw to sauteed. And in the same way, we need to accept fire as part of our transformational process. I was teaching this in a class last night. I said to my students, you know, my assumption is that you came to class tonight wanting to leave feeling differently than how you arrived. And so in doing that, my hope is that you are agreeing to being put through the fire. That is pretty much how I operate as a teacher. I assume that people want to change and change requires energy input. Change rarely happens spontaneously, passively, with 
no effort, no energy input. So going, just going back to the fire of cooking something, you know, in order to cook a vegetable, you have to apply heat, no heat, no cooking, no change in the vegetable. If, if anything, if you just leave that vegetable alone, it will, it'll rot, it'll decompose. When students come to class, I don't think they want to just lie there and decompose. I'm assuming that they want a positive change, that they want to be cooked a little bit. And so the practice that I teach is generally has at least some fire. Even the more mild classes that I teach have some element of fire of discipline. So I ask students to align their bodies, to hold poses, to practice being disciplined by drawing in and creating heat in their muscles. It's a big part of the practice. It's a big part of what makes people better. I assume that they want to feel better. As you said, I assume that they want to reach the highest. I assume that every human being at the end of our lives, we want the most out of life. None of us wants to be at the end of life and say, oh, you know what? I only got half out of life. We all want to be at the end of life and go, you know what? I got the most out of this lifetime that I could. And that's going to require some effort. I think for most of us, we're not magically going to have the most full life if we're just very passive about it, if we just wait for things to happen to us. We have to make things happen. We have to be fiery about it. We have to be disciplined in our efforts and our actions both on and off of the map. We do. And as you were talking, I'm realizing that really anything worth having in life requires a process of kind of cooking yourself. You know, yoga is a process of cooking. Relationships are a process of cooking. Work is a process of cooking. Working toward different goals is a process of cooking. So the the part that always really sticks out to me is accepting that as part of the process and not wanting to inflict more pain on whatever it is that you're working toward. So in the studio, students may want to inflict harm upon us for putting them through the fire, but tapas is about releasing that desire for sort of revenge and accepting pain as purification, pain or discomfort. And that is pretty life-changing if you can really embody that. If I really truly didn't wish pain on people who caused me pain, then I might be levitating in meditation right now. Right. And you mentioned not using that fire to cause others pain. And I would add to that also not using that fire to cause yourself pain. You can have too much fire and we'll go back to the cooking example if you put too much fire on the vegetable, you're going to burn it. There is a specific application of heat, a specific amount of discipline. We can focus on it too much and we get burned. It's so interesting because people so often use the term burnout or burnt out when they've been too fiery, when they've been burning at both ends, like the fire analogies just go on and on. The fourth niyama is swadaya or self-study. Swadaya literally means 
one's own reading or study of the self. This to me is a big part of the practice. How do you practice this or teach this on the mat, Phoebe? I think all of life offers us the opportunity for self-study. If you allow it, you can study yourself in a yoga pose. You can study yourself when you're driving. You can study yourself when you're in a conversation. My self and spiritual study is is honestly kind of is studying for the podcast. And, and that's kind of become uh, my spiritual studying practice, which has been really lovely where I set aside time in the morning or evening and read through our texts and think through what we're going to talk about. And of course the intention is to, to get ready for the podcast, but then it's also my time to really tune in and connect. And what's so cool for me week after week is that whatever passage I open up to has some really important lesson and application for whatever I'm going through that week. So, so what I, uh, is really committing to regular study, which then turns it into a spiritual practice. I think of what we do for the podcast as self-study, really any, anything that I do for yoga, learning philosophy and preparing for teacher training and preparing for my classes. What I heard you saying and, and what I do as well is that we internalize the the topic or the theme we make it personal and in that process of preparing to communicate this information to discuss this information we we draw it into ourselves and we reflect on it in terms of our our own personal experience and then that becomes this process of self-reflection this process of self-study on the yoga mat i think that we're all faced with challenges and thoughts and feelings and sensations, physical and emotional and mental, that cause reflection. In the Anusara practice, we tend to hold poses for a little bit, a little bit meaning, you know, 60 seconds to two minutes at times. And in that moment where you're engaged and holding a pose and hearing your own thoughts, you're hopefully learning something about yourself, how you react to challenge, how you react to being held in a pose for longer than you'd like, being challenged to be quiet and find stillness for a breath or two. All of that to me is is self-study. So we can do self-study through actually cracking open a book and reading about the philosophy but we can also do self-study simply by being with ourselves on the yoga mat, challenged by a pose, or even just sitting in meditation for 20 minutes or so, uh, which is a great way to study ourselves. Um, and it's, it's another way that I, I practice. I don't do a lot of meditation, but I, I do a seated, I just call it a sitting practice. I don't even call it meditation. I just sit and do nothing, close my eyes for 20 minutes and uh, it's a reflection on who I am. It's a study of myself. It's cool. It can, you know, self-study can be seated meditation. It can also just kind of be waking up in the moment when you realized 
you've checked your phone for like the 10th time in an hour and just witnessing your patterns and watching things play out and suddenly again, kind of jumping back into that non-judgmental, curious witness consciousness and, and seeing yourself move through life and then deciding, is this how I want to move through life or do I want to change it up a little bit? Do I want a pattern shift? And that's where these tools really help us start to take ownership of life, to put intention and not feel victim to our days. And that's where we really get to experience, you know, we've talked quite a bit about how revelation is the the sort of peekaboo nature of of being a human of remembering that we're spirit and forgetting and and so when we are studying ourselves we get to kind of watch that pulsation between feeling like we're very small and separate and then remembering that we're part of something bigger and that we can craft our lives exactly as we want them to look the last niyama is Ishvara Pranidhana, which is roughly translates as surrendering to God. Translating it that way may carry some pretty heavy connotations for some people. So I would generalize it just a little bit more. And it, to me, Ishvara Pranidhana is the practice of recognizing that there's something bigger out there than just our limited selves, our bodies and our minds, that there's a bigger energy, there's a bigger picture, there are bigger possibilities than I can even imagine. And all of those things are practices of Ishvara Pranidhana. I would distill Ishvara Pranidhana into a really simple phrase, which is just go with the flow. It's just going with the flow on every level. And you're right. You know, I think surrendering to God may carry some, some connotations that not everyone can connect with, which is why I think of it as, I mean, just realizing that we're like a stick in a river, you know, and you can either swim with the river or try and resist it. And it is much easier to just flow with it. And, and it's hard because our minds project expectations, um, project fear, project, um, you know, all kinds of different things onto our experience when in reality we are just in this flow that we don't entirely understand. But when we release the desire to try and resist it, things tend to go a lot more easily and fluidly. So I love that the the niyamas lead up to this one because even though the order isn't always important, I do think that getting to this point of just total release and total surrender and total like, sure, I'll go with it is is one of the most spiritual things you can do. I like the stick in the river image. Anusara can literally be translated. Anu is point, Sara is flow. So it's a point in the flow. It is the stick in the river. Literally, it's the stick in the river. So Anusara 
we can translate as step into the flow, go with the flow, align with the flow, align with grace. Ishvara Pranidhana really is ansara in, in many ways, if, if you're translating it that way, if you're conceptualizing it that way. And the first principle of anusara is open to grace. Set the foundation and open to grace. Uh, open to grace is, again, may carry that religious connotation using the word grace. So again, I, I'll change it, make it more general. It's just opening to the universe or opening to something bigger than myself. Just recognizing that I cannot control everything in the great flow of energy of the universe. I'm just a little point or a little stick riding the waves. And, and may I ride those waves to my biggest, most full experience. I just have to remember that I'm just on the waves. I'm just on the, I'm on the river. The river is mighty. The river is great. And, and I'm just going to go with it. I'm going to enjoy the ride. So I, I love that you use that analogy. It goes right into, to Anasara. Thank you for pointing that out. May we continue to be pure, content, accepting, self-studying, surrendered sticks in the river. Thanks everyone for listening, but we would love to hear how you practice any or all of the yamas or niyamas at this point. And there are different ways you can interact with us. You can interact with us on Instagram. It's probably the easiest way. Uh, send us a direct message or leave us a comment on, on one of our posts. We would also really appreciate any reviews and or five stars on podcasts, uh, on Apple Podcasts, that would really help us out, get us in front of uh, more potential listeners. If you would like to do that, we would really ap- appreciate that effort. Let's not forget to shout out our newest patron on Patreon. We are sending lots of love and gratitude to Moya for supporting the podcast and if you would like to support us in making more content and continuing to talk uh, through yoga philosophy then please visit our patreon page www.patreon.com slash yoga chit chat if you are willing to give up one cup of coffee a month that and you can commit $5 to us, that goes a long way for us. So thank you, Moya. And we hope to have your, the support of the community as well. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next time. See you next time.